If you have your Bibles, could you please open to Esther chapter 3 with me this evening. Esther chapter 3. Our text this evening will be verses 7 through to 15. It is rather fitting that today being Remembrance Day in our country, where we remember those who have risked everything for our freedom, that we come this evening to study this narrative. And to this very day, this particular narrative, an event from this narrative, is remembered by the Jews. As we'll learn towards the end of this book, the Feast of Purim is celebrated as a remembrance of the particular events recorded in this book of Scripture. If we remember the last time that we were together in the book of Esther, we considered the first portion of chapter 3, that being the first six verses. And we had revealed to us the villain of this story, that of course being Haman, the Amalekite, the ancient enemy of the Jews. If we remember upon Mordecai failing to give the reverence to Haman that he thought was due to him, and upon finding out the ancestry of this man, he decided that as revenge, he would not only seek to have Mordecai put to death, but he would seek to exterminate the entire Jewish race. This was rather over the top. It was harsh. It was a brutal punishment. This all rooted and motivated by his ancestry. We left this story on a knife edge, I guess one could say. This threat was real. One can almost hear and smell death approaching. But for in order for this wicked plan to come to fruition, Haman would have to convince the king to approve of this mass extermination. And it is this seeking to get the king's approval that will be the focus of our study this evening. So without anything more to say, let's consider our text and then commit this time to the Lord. So that's the chapter 3. Commence reading at verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of king Ahasuerus, they cast Pur. That is the lot before Haman from day to day and from month to month, to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king... Let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagites, the Jews' enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month. And there was written, according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants, and to the governors that were over every province, and to the rulers of every people, 
of every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus was it written, and sealed with the king's ring. And the letters were sent by posts into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Ada, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people, that they should be ready against that day. The post went out being hastened by the king's commandments, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. The title for the message this evening is The Accuser and the Advocates. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly before you this evening, knowing that we need your help to understand your word. I do pray you would grant us the gift of illumination as we come around your word this evening. Please be with me as I share what I've studied out, Father. I do pray what I say comes across clearly, Lord, and I do pray that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts this evening, Father. I do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Haman, having determined what action he was going to take, decides before going to present his case and endeavour to skillfully manipulate the king, it would be wise to determine the particulars of his proposed plan. Much like before a barrister will come before a jury or a judge to defend his client or to put forward an accusation, much research and planning and preparation has been undertaken. And Haman follows a similar practice before he presents his case. He knows that he will need a date for this particular proposal. Verse 7 reveals to us the process that was used in order to determine the exact date that this colossal massacre was to commence. The method used, we are told, was that a pearl was cast. Pearl is a Persian word for the Hebrew lot. And this is a familiar practice in the Old Testament. Lots were cast in the story of Jonah, if we remember. And the lot fell on Jonah, this determining his fate. The exact method that was used in this situation is a little uncertain. More than likely, a stone was thrown, much like a modern dice. Now the text does reveal to us here that the exact day and the exact month was determined by this process, meaning that it would seem because of this, and the fact that the verb to cast actually has the sense of something falling. So these stones were more than likely thrown to the ground, where different sections were marked off, one section with the different months laid out, and another section with the different days laid out. And the stone would then fall on the month and would fall on the day. And this would determine the exact day of the bloodbath. Now this particular process was performed by the court astrologers and was used to determine whether their gods 
approved of what was being proposed. Their entire religious system was really based on fate and chance. They were an extremely superstitious people. Now our text reveals to us a date that particularly highlights the superstition of Haman. This process was carried out, we are told, in the month Nisan. This is the first month of the Jewish calendar, corresponding with our late March to early April. Now this particular timing is significant for two reasons. Now, number one, the first month of the year was always used to cast lots to determine opportune days for important events. So in the Persian kingdom, they may have six events that has to happen in this year. They would cast lots in Nisan to determine the exact dates of it. And number two, it was common Persian religious thought that on the first month of the year, the gods would determine the mortal destinies for all mankind for the forthcoming year. So in the first year, they would determine what's going to happen to Brendan in that year. So both of these reasons would have made this seem like the opportune time for Haman to determine the date and to seek the approval of the gods to carry out this brutal annihilation. Upon the casting of these lots, the exact date that was determined according to verse 13 was the 13th day of the 12th month. So this man would have to wait 11 months before he could put his wicked plan into action. How this made him feel, we are unsure. Perhaps he was frustrated that he had to wait so long. Or maybe he was delighted because he would feel now he had the approval of the gods, which would make it a lot easier to get the approval of the king. Xerxes, the gods gave me this approval. You should allow me to do this. You know, perhaps he could use these 11 months to fine-tune his massacre plans and make sure that the Jews were living in this constant fear, building up the anticipation to these wicked events, perhaps hoping that some would flee or take their lives into their own hands. I find it interesting and ironic that it was superstition that made Haman to be willing to wait so long. Not once did it cross his mind that there was a huge moral issue, but he placed his faith in these lots, something that is governed by pure chance. And it was Haman's willingness to listen and obey this lot that eventually brought about his downfall. This time period of 11 months enabled the Jews, particularly Mordecai and Esther, enough time to counteract the proposed plan. You know, the time that was granted is no doubt the hand of God at work. God disposed the lot and overruled this entire situation. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. The Lord was in control this entire time. Even though this may not have seemed to be the case for those who are on the receiving end of this extermination plots, but the Lord worked and made sure that there would be enough time for this plan to be squashed. And although the name 
God is not mentioned in this particular book, his hand is more than evident for all to see. And brethren, we would do well to remember that God is always in control. God is sovereign. Even when it seems that things are getting out of control, which is often the case in our present world, is it not? Even when it seems our lives have been turned upside down, we are tempted to question, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? We must remember that God is on the throne. God is in control. And he's working in human affairs for his plans to be accomplished for his glory. He can even work through wicked men and wicked circumstances like in this situation. Having now determined his proposal and the particulars of it, it is now time to present his case to the king. And what a cunning, crafty case he presented. Read with me if you can. again, if you would, verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8, And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. We see within these verses that Haman concocted a twisted and deceitful message in order to convince this king of his proposal. He endeavors to convince the king that this particular proposal is good for the king. It is for the king's good and for the good of his kingdom. And this charge is particularly dangerous for many of the accusations are half true. This crafty presentation begins rather vaguely. He says there is a certain people. He does not come out and identify these people. Neither does he show the quantity involved. And this is often a ploy used by troublemakers. I have all these people who are on my side, yet no names are mentioned. Now, The reason for such vague information is perhaps to hide his true motive and also the extent of this plan. There would have been many different people throughout this vast empire. Remember, there's 127 provinces more than likely hundreds of nationalities. Perhaps the king just assumed that this was some small minority in a deep, dark corner of his empire. But the king should have queried as to who these people were, yet he remained silent, somewhat captivated by this wicked accuser. This unnamed group of people are described here by Haman as being scattered and dispersed throughout the empire. Now, there is definitely truth in this particular statement. There were obviously Jews in Shushan. We know of Esther. We know of Mordecai. We know there were Jews who did not want to leave Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. 
So there's obviously Jews there. We know that a remnant had returned to Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding task. No doubt there were Jews in other various places due to persecution, loss of property and such like. The reason for such an argument was perhaps to show the influence that they could have throughout the entire empire since they were not confined to one particular place. Perhaps he said, Xerxes, they are everywhere. They can have an influence with everybody. You know, perhaps this was the card that he played. Haman's next accusation on these people is of not keeping the king's law and having their own law. The complaint of having one's own law, this was certainly true. The Jews did have their own law. It was God's law. But really, this is a flawed argument because it was actually Persian policy, which Xerxes should have known, to allow all the conquered nations to retain their own laws and their own usages. As long as they paid tribute, gave the king money, they didn't care what the people did. So this argument, and the other argument, sorry, of not keeping the king's law is grossly distorted and twisted. There was only one man disregarded one of the king's commandments. And this was out of respect and duty to his God. And Haman from this makes the accusation that this entire race of people are a race who continually disregard the laws of the king. Now he paints the picture of a wicked, rebellious race who have no regard whatsoever for the laws and decrees of the king. And this particular false accusation is of vital importance. For Xerxes did not take too kindly to those who would rebel against his rule. Xerxes had already dealt with rebellion rather brutally. The Egyptians were dealt with in the first year of his reign. The Babylonians were ferociously punished for their rebellion and their refusal to pay tributes. So Haman, just like the crafty serpent he's representing, offers a persuasive argument that would appeal to a particular weakness of this ruler. Before presenting exactly what he wants... Haman reveals one more argument, and it's here that we see the particular guile and deceit of this man. He's careful here to intrigate himself with the king by appearing to be motivated by the king's prophets. Look at the last phrase of verse 8. It says, therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. So Haman makes it seem that his motivation was primarily for the king's sake, not for his own selfish ambition or for his own great hatred. And this ploy is the same as what Satan uses. And if this will not hurt you, it will be good for you. I want you to do this for your benefit, for your good. Remember in the Garden of Eden, you will become as gods. It's for you not me. You know, Satan, the father of lies, has a well-trained student in Haman. After presenting these accusations, accusations with a mixture of truth, error, and exaggeration, his resolution is presented in verse 9. 
He desires a written decree from the king that these people be destroyed, that this entire nation be exterminated. This was his conclusion, what he thought to be the logical solution. And just in case the accusations presented were not sufficient to convince the king, this wicked man offers a rather large incentive in order to get his own way. In other words, a bribe is offered. Bribery was very common in the Persian culture. In fact, historians actually write, in the Persian court, the party who could provide the biggest bribe would win the case, wouldn't matter how guilty they are. And the king was certainly not immune to such corrupt behaviour, particularly when such a large sum of money is offered. They say every man has his price. We are informed that the figure promised for approval was 10,000 talents of silver. The exact value of this figure is a little difficult to determine. It has been estimated that 10,000 talents of silver would be equivalent to approximately 375 tonne of silver. And on current silver prices, this figure is around about $180 million. Whether that is the best way to think of this figure, I'm not convinced. I think the best way to look at this particular bribe is that the historians say that this figure is equivalent to two-thirds of the annual revenue raised throughout this entire kingdom. So think about it: how much money the Australian government rakes in in revenue, whatever that figure would be, and somebody gives two-thirds of that in order to get their own way. This is the type of figure he has offered. You know, Such was his hatred for the Jews that he was willing to give up such a fortune, you know, although he would rekindle much of this. But what great dedication this man had to such a wicked task. He would give up so much. You know, I think we can apply this to ourselves. If only we had such dedication and willingness to give up so much for the cause of Jesus Christ. Haman, having now made his sale pitch, receives what it seems an instant response from this king. Ahasuerus was greatly and easily influenced and manipulated by this man. Read with me verse 10 and 11, which reveal the king's response. Verse 10, And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy, And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. The diabolical character of this ruler is once again exposed for all to see, immediately agreeing to this proposition to exterminate numerous lives. He's saying to Haman, I don't know who they are. I don't really care who they are. But if you think they ought to be exterminated, then go right ahead. You know, what a complete disregard to the value of human life. What I want to draw our attention to in verse 10 is not just the fact that he agrees 
but he removes his signet ring and gives it to Haman. These rings, normally made of gold or other precious stones, it would contain a unique impression within the ring. And when dipped in wax, it would imprint this unique impression on a document. Haman now had in his possession the most influential signet ring in the entire empire, giving him almost unlimited power and authority. He had the authority to make as many laws and decrees as was required to carry out this wicked endeavour and could instamp them all in the king's name. And we must remember that once a decree was made and stamped with the royal signet, it was now irrevocable. This was the Persian law. It could not be changed. Typical to his character, the king acts without thinking and regrets it dramatically afterwards. But the question must be asked, why? Why would the king agree to such a colossal massacre? The lack of information that Haman presented may have played a part in his agreeing to this situation. But I think the overriding motivation was the promise of such a large sum of money in order to replenish the royal treasuries. These treasuries had been depleted massively. We must remember that Xerxes went off on this massive war campaign against the Greeks, a campaign that they lost miserably. He lost his entire fleet of ships. His army was huge. He had to feed them for an extended period of time. This cost the empire an awful lot of money. Plus, we also need to remember the lifestyle that Xerxes was living. He would throw this banquet for six months, invite hundreds of people. You know, imagine the cost of such a banquet. So this situation was a very easy way for this man to gain much money for doing absolutely nothing. And this would enable him to continue living this indulgent, extravagant lifestyle. This seems to be the most plausible explanation as to why he would agree to such an atrocious act. Upon bestowing this authority upon Haman, who is now called the Jews' enemy, a name that he is still known as today, the king gives an instruction in verse 11 that can be a little bit difficult to understand. Scholars present numerous interpretations of this verse. So some think here in verse 11 that the king refuses to take this bribe from Haman. That's what they think this verse means. But I think this is a little irrational, for it was the money that was the main motivation. And in Esther 4.7, Mordecai reveals that Haman has promised to pay money. And in Esther 7.4, Esther declares that she and her people are sold, this meaning money exchanged. So this to me proves that this is not the way to interpret this verse. Some others think that this is some sort of ancient custom where you would courteously reject the offer while still expecting to receive it. That didn't make much sense to me. It could be possible. But I think the best way to interpret this verse is that Xerxes said unto Haman that the property and the possessions of all of those 
who were put to death would now belong to him. In the king's authority, he would repossess all that belonged to the massacred, perhaps a way to replenish the money that Haman outlays. At this time, things are not looking very good for the Jewish people. Their great enemy has had much power bestowed upon him by this foolish king who in his great ignorance has just signed away the lives of thousands of people without any hesitation, without any inquiry, including the life of his own queen. This is how foolish this man is. Without hesitation... Haman immediately uses this authority that's been given to him and puts his plan into writing, having it signed, sealed and delivered. And we see this in the remaining verses of our text in verses 12 through to 15. In verse 12, we see that the scribes were instantly called and were commanded to document all that Haman spoke. The swift response ensuring that the king definitely had no time whatsoever to change his mind. Verse 13 discloses the exact nature of this decree that was composed. This was a proclamation without mercy. This was a brutal, all-inclusive campaign. Consider the language that's used in verse 13. It says to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish. This is brutish, cruel language particularly when the recipients are considered. Look at verse 13 again. It specifies young and old, little children and women. Children, women and elderly were normally exempt from war. But this was not the case in this all-inclusive colossal massacre. And the brutality of this campaign is highlighted in the fact that this was to be done in one day. This is a terrible, terrible edict that is being presented. I want to point out two interesting facts in regards to this proclamation being documented and sealed by the king's signet. Number one, the similarity in what was documented by Haman compared to the instructions given to Saul by Samuel when he sent him to destroy the Amalekites. Remember, the Amalekites are Haman's people. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We'll read the first three verses. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we'll notice some similarities. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 1 says, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Verse 3. Notice the similarities here. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. The two accounts here are almost identical. The only obvious difference being that Saul and his army were not to take any spoil, which they disobeyed. 
And perhaps Haman was aware of these instructions that had been given against his people and hence he responded in like manner, shaking his fist at God. I can do whatever you can do. Number two, the timing of this proposal being penned is also rather interesting. The 13th day of Nisan, when this was penned, is the day before Passover. So the Jews would have been busy preparing for the Passover, while at the same time yet another plan was being developed to exterminate their existence as they remembered their deliverance from such a plot in Egypt. There seems to be an unmistakable irony. Upon these decrees being documented and sealed in the name of the king, they quickly distributed throughout the entire empire all 127 provinces taking advantage of the well-structured Persian postal system. This was rather sophisticated for their particular time. Most scholars believe that the furthest point of the empire would be reached in a month or two at the most. And this would have been hastened particularly because the king gave a special command to make sure this happened quickly. So this wicked decree spread quickly to the deepest, darkest corners of this empire. This bad news travelled fast, despite it having to be prepared, documented and translated. And having now sent out these death warrants to thousands of people, having read it in the main city, Haman and the king now sit down to drink. Probably a reference to yet another drunkard, immoral banquet. Now what a hard, calloused heart that both of these men possessed. They had just approved something so violent, so destructive, yet they respond in partying and celebration. Now what a despicable character, what terrible apathy. Now the people in Shushan at this time, and this is the first time that Shushan is mentioned, every other time it says Shushan the palace. So when it refers to the city of Shushan, this is talking about the normal people, the everyday folk like you and I. When this was read to them, they were shell-shocked. They had no idea how to respond and process the proclamation that they had just heard. Now how could they seek to destroy a race of people who were clearly innocent? What would stop the ruler next deciding to destroy their nationality? Now these people who were used to witnessing cruel, callous behaviour were truly in mass shock over such an edict presented. Now Haman... The great accuser has manipulated the situation, deceiving the king, and now the entire Jewish race is on death row. No, Haman, the great accuser, seems to have victory secured, but just like the master accuser, Satan, he couldn't be further from the truth. For in the court of law where there is an accuser, there is also a defendant, And it is with this thought that I wish to finish with two points this evening. An encouragement and an an exhortation. So number one, an encouragement. 
Haman in this story is really a type of Satan. And in this text, he carries out one of the favorite functions of his master, and that is to be an accuser. Haman, I don't want to combine them, comes before the king, accusing just as Satan comes before God, accusing you and I. Revelation 12 refers to Satan as the great accuser of the brethren. But there is a difference. When Satan comes to pin accusations on you and I, there is truth in these allegations. He does not have to lie in order to have us found guilty like Haman did. We are rotten in sin, deserving hell. We are guilty of transgression upon transgression. But beloved, what an encouragement. We do not have to fear the great accuser or his many accusations because we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. He is our lawyer. He is our representative. When the great dragon presents his case against you and I, Jesus can stand up and say, Yes, Father, they're guilty, but they are covered by me. Whatever Satan can accuse us of, it has been covered by the blood of the Saviour. And we can now come because we are clothed in his righteousness and the great accuser has nothing on us. And praise God that our king is not like Xerxes, but our king is our advocate. And when the slanderer comes, he can say, yes, that's true, but I paid it away with you. Jesus Christ is our advocate. Praise God. And number two, an exhortation. When we consider this text, you and I are quick to condemn Haman for his great hatred and apathy towards the Jews. And rightly so. How can someone start partying and feasting with so many people set to die? But we must examine our own hearts and make sure we are not hypocritical in this judgment. Let me explain. In our world, there are billions of lost sinners under a sentence of eternal death. Yet we as Christians are often doing very little about it. Often we, like Haman, sit down at our own little banquet, not even considering the fact that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. And we do not have to be hardened unbelievers like Haman to become apathetic and unconcerned about the plight of the billions of lost souls in this world. And unfortunately, this attitude is so common. We get so caught up with our own things, our own lives, that we often forget the terrible position that so many souls are in, lost, dying on their way to hell. The question is, what are we going to do about it? There are thousands of souls just in our small community with an eternal death sentence on their accounts. What are we going to do about it? Be apathetic like Haman? Sit back feasting and banqueting knowing that we are safe? Or are we going to fulfill the Great Commission and inform the world of their plight and that Jesus died for them. How are they here 
if we don't tell them. Amen. Let's pray.